The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of Essential Conversations is supported by Rob Bell and his profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Bell as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Dr. Lydia Dugdale, is director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics and Dorothy L. and Daniel H. Silberberg Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University. Prior to her 2019 move to Columbia, she served as Associate Director of the Program of Biomedical Ethics at Yale. She edited Dying in the 21st Century and is the author of The Lost Art of Dying, which will be the focus of today's conversation. You can read several essays of hers in Spirituality Health Magazine and on the website, spiritualityhealth.com, specifically one called Dying Without Religion, The Existential Concern which is excerpted more or less from her current book. Lydia Dugdale, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to this conversation for a couple of reasons. One, I'm very interested in dying. I mean, not me personally anytime (laughs) soon, but I'm going to turn 70 or complete my 70th year of life, depending if you you count the American way or the Japanese way. But I'm going to be 70 in a couple of months. And I read somewhere that when you hit 70, you're old enough to die, which means that when someone reads about your death at age 70, they don't go, oh, he was so young. (laughs) They'll go, oh, yeah, well, 70, at least he made it to 70. So I'm interested in that. But I also think, and your book addresses it so beautifully, that there is an art to this. I mean, I've been working with dying people for decades. And they, I mean, first they can teach us a lot, but mm. there is this art to it. And that's what I, that's what I loved about the book. I mean, that's, it's called The Lost Art of Dying. You've reclaimed it and we'll explore that here. So you talk in the very early on in the book, and I may be saying this wrong, I guess it's Latin, uh, ars mio, no, say it for me, ars moriendi. That's perfect. Ars moriendi. Latin right. for art of dying. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Ars Moriendi. And this was a pop, this was actually a book or something like that in the Middle Ages. What did they mean and what do you mean about 
or by the term art of dying? Sure. Great question. So the Ars Moriendi actually refers to a whole body of literature that developed during the aftermath of the bubonic plague outbreak that struck Western Europe in the mid-1300s. But this body of literature ended up sort of existing until the early 1900s in many, many different forms. So its first iteration, we think, uh, developed under the auspices of some of the leaders of the Western church at the time. But it didn't stay within the Western church um, or within Catholicism, it was quickly picked up by other religious and non-religious groups. And the Ars Moriendi refers to uh, a series of handbooks, again, by all different sorts of people on how to die well. The sort of central thread of these handbooks was that if one wants to die well, one must live well. And then in order to live well, you have to sort of attend to those questions of what it means to live well in order to die well. So it's, it's, it's a practice, it's an art that is to be practiced over a lifetime. Uh, it's not something that you just save up for at the end of your life. You know, when you turn 70, that's not when you start thinking about these things. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. Oh, all right. All right. Thank you. I remember being on a panel with a Zen Buddhist nun, and the question was the problem of dying. And she kept talking about the problem of dying when she was doing what we were asked to do. And then when it was my turn, I said, I don't really see the problem with dying. I mean, you get hit by a bus, you die. I mean, it just, that's it. It's not a problem. The problem is living. That's right. So, so you know, maybe you and I are somewhat on the same page. So, so you asked then, well, what do we mean by an art of dying today? And that's really what the whole book attempts to unpack. If we were to try to reclaim this genre of literature, this art of dying body of literature, what would it look like in a 21st century pluralistic context? And I try to take that on in the book, looking at questions of the art or lack of art of engaging with healthcare, dying in the hospital, the role for community, uh, whether one can die artfully and die alone, uh, the distinction between dying alone and lonely dying, uh, I look at ritual and the role of spirituality, whether that should have a place or not. What is it that we are attempting to see through ritual or through the funeral? What, what is that doing for us? And then in the end of the book, I try to pull all of these themes together with some very concrete, you know, almost take homes for people to hold on to as they project forward and think about their own aging processes and then eventually they're dying. You know, I mean, you've been working on this book for a while, pre-COVID-19. It just strikes me that that if the Ars Moriendi was a response to the bubonic plague, your book may be the first, even if it wasn't intended that way, the first uh, in a whole series of responses to the coronavirus, which I don't think is going away anytime soon and which can, you know, is, is killing so many people, though not like the bubonic plague. So there, you know, there, there's a timeliness to this, but I just wanted you to expand a little bit on the notion of dying alone versus lonely dying. Mm. So let me, let me set it up for you. My dad died several years ago and he died alone. We were all with him. He wasn't in a hospital. He's in like a hospice. We were all together as a family. And then he just said, you know, go, go, go home. And as soon as we all left, he died. And I've seen that many times people, mm-hmm. some people, and I think my dad was one of them, just wanted to be alone when he died. Uh, by the time I drove my mother back to her condo, 
the phone rang, cell phone rang, and we were told my father had died, and we just turned around and went right back. So it just took him a few minutes between asking us to leave and then actually passing away. That's dying alone, but lonely dying. My aunt died of COVID, mm. and she was cut off. I mean, she, you know, we never saw her. We couldn't talk to her. That to me, I guess, is what I would consider lonely dying. Can you talk about the difference and 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 how people can wrestle with that? Yeah. So I'll back up and say, you're absolutely right that I finished this manuscript pre-COVID. We didn't, we had no idea a pandemic was coming. And the book is very much, it, it sort of builds off of this idea of the, the Ars Moriandi developing as a response to plague that decimated Western Europe. Historians estimate perhaps as many as two thirds of the population of Western Europe died from that particular outbreak. So yeah, here we are in this moment of reliving plague or you know, living our own version of plague and, uh, and death is, is front and center. The distinction that I describe in the book, it aligns perfectly with what you just described. Dying alone does not mean at all lonely dying. So classically, I, and, and you said that you've seen this many times, I as a doctor have seen this many times where people who classically did not like to burden others, they were the ones that would always rather do something for you than have you do something for them. Those folks often will wait until everybody has gone home for the night and then will just let themselves die. We see that characteristically and quite commonly for people who are dispositioned that way. I contrast that in the book with uh, this phenomenon that's very common in New York City and other large urban areas such as Tokyo, Japan, where people die and are only discovered because of the stench of their bodies, ah. uh, sort of, you know, coming through the walls of apartment buildings and things. And in fact, in New York City, there are services provided by the government, the local government, and their function is to go into these apartments and first of all, recover the body and look for evidence of foul play and things like that, but also then to essentially try to identify a next of kin or someone who might be a personal contact. And then there's also a, another aspect of this, which is trying to figure out what the estate is worth. And then they sort of add all of this up and they do all the cleaning out and they subtract for the cost of the work and then, you know, give that money to whoever would be the, the, the person to inherit it. So that, you know, dying in a way where y your body is only recovered weeks later because it is decaying, um, or in the case of some stories in Japan, years later and can be very, very horrible. That is lonely dying. And I think you're, Reference to this moment with COVID and the restrictions on visitors. And even, you know, I was working in the hospital during the height of the pandemic here in New York. And it was, oh, it was so tragic that um, because of PPE scarcity, we were doing everything we could to limit contact with patients. And of course, their own families couldn't be at the bedside. They didn't want us to go into the rooms unnecessarily. And for good reason, we were trying to conserve what we had for the sake of the common good, right? It was all well-intentioned. But to have patients die and their last communication be through an iPad really felt, just felt like we were, you know, doing just violence really to the, to the way that human beings are wired. We were 
barring them from the richness of their community in their last moments of life. And that was that was a tragedy for the doctors and nurses caring for those patients. It was a tragedy for the patients and certainly for their family members. And you're right, that is that is a sort of lonely dying. I mean, it's different from, you know, at least we have the technology, right? I, that That's been a gift in many ways, but that has been a, a form of lonely dying that we've created. Right, right. Yeah. You know, I've also experienced people dying, angry dying. Mm. I, I, let, let, me, let me give me an example and see what, what you think. Um, I won't make a long story out of this. I was shopping one day when I was living and I had a congregation in Miami, Florida, and I was shopping and this woman was getting some food for her family and she saw me and I didn't know her, but she knew me and told me that her mother was dying in the nursing home next to the place that we were. And she had just gone over to get some food for the family. The family was all gathered in the nursing home. Her mom refused to see anybody. She had been feuding with her family for, I don't know, years. Mm -hmm. They still came to see her, but she wouldn't have anything to do with them. And this woman asked if I would go and talk to her mother and get her to let everybody into her room. So, I mean, you can't say no. So I went over. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the woman who's dying. And I walked into her room. I introduced myself. She was curled up in a fetal position, position against a concrete wall, you know, laying in her bed. And... I just sat down next to her on the bed and I explained that her family was outside. She was totally unresponsive. And I, I, not knowing what to say, I simply said, look, you have two choices. You're dying. You can either die here all curled up against a cold stone wall, or you can die in the company of people who came to see you because they love you. Mm -hmm. She never looked up. She never responded to me verbally or made any kind of eye contact but her hand came out from under her blanket and she motioned. I, I mean, you can't see me doing it, but it's like, come here, come here. She motioned, like, bring the family in. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I went out and I said that, you know, your mom wants to see you. I don't know what happened after that. But some people, and she's not the only one I know, but some people die so angry mm, uh, yeah. where I would imagine that the art of dying is a way to free yourself from that anger if the anger exists so that you can die like you said, with community. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think that a big part of the art of dying going back to the late Middle Ages was the role of community at the deathbed, but also of reconciliation and peacemaking and bestowing words of blessing on one another. Uh, what, what, you know, you can, you can leave all the possessions you want, but those words that are irreplaceable, that someone has been longing their whole life to hear from their father or their mother or their brother, or their, you know, uh, that, that is irreplaceable. And recently I was doing a book talk and someone in the audience said to me, well, look, I, you know, you challenged us to think about who we'd want at our deathbed or while we're dying. And I know who I want there. And, you know, there's a part of me that would like to reconcile with them, but the, I, it's really hard to reconcile with these people. I mean, I want them there when I'm dying, but I'm not dying yet. So I really don't want to have to do the work of reconciling with them now. Uh, can't I just wait? And, you know, my response was, well, you can wait, but none of us know when we're going to die. Um, or you can do the work of reconciling now. And those relationships will be so much richer for what you put into them now. And then you'll have that time, how many ever days, months, years you have remaining to build on those relationships and how much richer will the dying experience be because you've been working on those relationships. 
And I think that's sort of what we need to push ourselves toward. You know, we're, we're a society that's very much uh, grown accustomed to taking the easy way out. And certainly when we live in kind of a death denying culture, it's easy to just say, we're not, I'm not at that point, so I don't need to do the work. But the whole point of the Ars Moriendi is do the work now because we don't know when death is going to come upon us. And in the late Middle Ages, if it wasn't the plague that would get you, it would be famine or war, uh, some sort of pestilence. So there was something that was going to get you. Uh, so you needed to be ready. Uh, we didn't know when that would happen. And in the case of the woman you just described, it makes me wonder if anyone had told her she was dying. And mm, maybe she just good. needed, know. you know, I mean, maybe I, I know as a physician, my medical doctor colleagues, we are notorious for not wanting to go there with patients. Yeah, maybe um, I broke the news to her. <laughs> well, maybe, I, I mean, maybe, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe you said it in a way that she could hear. And that was effective for tearing down those walls and starting the work of, of reconciling with her family members. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. You know, the Sufis have a, uh, a teaching that reflects a practice, that they, they, a phrase that they use called dying before you die. Hmm. And the whole idea is to, through contemplative practice and, and different kinds of rituals, to experience the loss of the separate self, the loss of the egoic self. Mm -hmm. which they would say is what happens when you die. You die into the greater capital S self or in Hinduism, the Atman or soul or you know, whatever the divine reality may be. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Is there any kind of practice that you recommend to people? Uh, I mean, you, you give us a lot of things to do in, in the uh, Lost Art of Dying in your book. Is there something along the lines of the Sufis that you know, where it's really, you're, you're practicing, you're rehearsing the dying process in a sense? Well, one way that the Ars Moriendi has been described is as a great drama, where the dying person is the central actor and the community members, the family, whoever's gathered at the bedside are all supporting actors, but they're supporting actors who also are understudies for the lead role. Because the idea is that even when you're a supporting actor, one day you will be playing the star. One day you will be the dying person. So even as you sit and attend to the dying, you should also be simultaneously anticipating your own mortality and preparing. I don't have explicitly any sort of Sufi or Hindu practices in the book that I could recommend. I think my, my urge to the reader is to be reflective, to acknowledge finitude, and to wrestle with the questions of what finitude does or should do for us in our living, and to wrestle with those questions in the context of a supportive and nurturing community. They knew that they weren't in the book. I guess that maybe you had something you know, that you do or that you, know, that you, you offer patients or that you're working with. Yeah. With patients, I do a lot of question asking. 
you know, when that when my patients raise existential concerns and they're thinking about their own dying, my my role really as a physician is not to be. It's interesting because I prescribe all kinds of medications or you know therapies, but when it comes to the existential, I'm not a chaplain. So my role is not so much to sort of prescribe specific practices, although I have prescribed writing journals of gratitude in the past for patients who didn't have much gratitude. Um, but yeah, not to, not to be prescriptive as much as to, to, to try to encourage uh, reflection and sort of a wrestling I feel like when patients come away from our conversations and say, you know, I really want to think about this. I need to go home and think about this. I want to talk to my, you know, significant other about this. That's when I feel like I've done done my work. And then if they go back and talk to their priest or rabbi or, or you know, whatever, spiritual leader, I, I think that that's probably the best person to attend to some of the details of those questions. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. You do mention religion in the book. You, you cite um, the British theologian N.T. Wright. Mm-hmm. And he says that there are three main ideas about life after death that compete with Judeo-Christian orthodoxy in the West. I mean, I, I don't like the term Judeo-Christian or orthodoxy for that matter. <laughs> but, um, you know, he talks about, or you mentioned uh, these three options, complete annihilation. You're dead. You're dead. Um, you make the reference that you're like a machine, the machine breaks and it's over and, and that's it. There's no consciousness that exists after the brain is dead. Or uh, there's reincarnation in one sense or another, or what I call spiritualism, but you're talking about spirits and ghosts and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So do people just grab onto those things when they're dying? They Like, like uh, atheists, and, you know, there's no atheists in a foxhole. They look for something or... Why bring those things in, or do you bring the, those things in? Yeah, why, why did I even go there? That's interesting. It's an interesting question. Well, so the first category of people who I, you know, are very materialist, right? And I don't mean that right. in sort of a like stuff, but in a what is real is is the material, and when the material is dead, then there is no more, right? So there's no spirit, there's no soul, there's no, you know sort of universal, whatever. Um, I would say that's probably as close as one gets to, to true, true atheism, right? If it's, if it's all the biologic and then the biologic is no more then that's it. Um, uh, I, I, I found rights categories helpful for sort of trying to, you know, I guess it's maybe it's incomplete or maybe, you, you know, you take issue whether the third category encaptures everyone's spirituality, perhaps not otherwise specified, but it's helpful for sort of trying to think through, okay, so for the non, you know, the non-conventionally religious, we might say, how are people making sense or not of these questions, these existential questions? And I think that's why I, I found rights categories, at least to maybe be a, a useful starting place, even if they're not exhaustive. Do you subscribe to anything in particular along those lines? Are you in one of those three categories or something else? I would put myself more in the uh, the, the, the being brought up in the Judeo-Christian tradition as much as you hate that term. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid from the Midwest and grew up in church. And- so you think you survived death in some way? Yeah, I would say that that I do that I believe very firmly that this world is not all that there is. I think it's difficult to know exactly what 
awaits. Let's take a moment to thank today's sponsor, Rob Bell. Rob has released a profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Rob as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. I used to be on call with a VA hospital covering when the Jewish chaplain was out for some reason. Uh-huh. And I got a call one day. This guy's dad was dying and I had to get right over there. I was, again, Miami. Traffic was horrendous. Uh-huh. And I got there and I, I raced in and I saw the guy leaning against the hospital room where his dad was. And I said, I'm sorry, it took me so long to get here. And he goes, well, my dad has died. So I felt terrible. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. He's going to be back. He'll be right back. <laughs> I said, wow, is this guy in denial? <laughs> wow. So, but then I'm talking to him. And then like three or four minutes later, you hear from inside the room, his dad is back and he's calling for his, his son. Oh, so that's in, funny. And, he, and the, the guy says, it's been happening all day. He dies. I mean, literally, it's just flatlined. And then you wait a few minutes and bam, he's back. <laughs> so wow. eventually, though, he did not come back. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that's probably a cardiac arrhythmia, a, a heart yeah, problem uh, right. that would need a pacemaker, but <laughs> not to diagnose him <laughs> over the, the phone here. But yeah, no, that's interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah, not quite reincarnation. But <laughs> yeah, right. It was sort of a resurrection kind that's of thing right. over, over and right. over and over again. I, I want, want to just ask you two, two additional things. One is in response to something you mentioned earlier about how you help people prepare by I mean, sort of journaling and, and writing things down. Uh, have you ever heard of the concept in Judaism? It's called ethical will. Go ahead and describe it for me. So as, as you, I mean, you can write it anytime, but it's, it's something that when you know you're dying, you, you begin to write uh, a, a will for your descendants not of your material goods, but of your values. Mm. And you articulate what really matters to you. And you can tell stories about how you learned this value or that value. And, and, and it's, that's another thing that you bequeath mm-hmm. to the people who survive you. It, you know, it can be done on paper. One of my congregants waited so long to do this, he could no longer lift a pencil. Oh. But he uh, was a television news reporter. And so the TV station brought in cameras and everything, and he did it from his deathbed. Hmm. And we actually played it at his funeral. He spoke, he was talking to his kids, but he spoke to the congregation and said what, what really matters to him. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a very powerful way to prepare for your death that you sort of go back, review your life, not from the point of view of making amends or anything like that, but this is what I learned. And this is what I'd like to you know, pass on to you. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of the Jewish patriarch, Jacob and his dying he sort of called all of the sons in and gave them each a verbal blessing that was consistent with how they were named and sort of what their characters were like and how he was sort of calling them to something even greater. And then gave very specific instructions about, so he went through all the sons like that and then gave specific instructions about where he wanted to be buried and how, and then he died. Yeah, you're right about that in the book. It's, it was really interesting. Last question, because we're going to run out of time. You also, at the very end of the book, you talk about what you call last words. And I'm really taken with that idea. In, in uh, Japanese Buddhist traditions, 
and not only that way, but a lot of a lot of Eastern religious traditions, the last words of the master mm-hmm. are considered really important. And there's this one Zen story. I don't remember the Roshi or the Zen master's name, but he was supposed to offer his death poem like all the masters are supposed to do, and he hadn't done it. And his death is imminent. And his senior disciples are around the bed. And they say, you have to you know, give us your, your death poem. And so he finally gets some energy and he says, I don't want to die. And they said, yeah, no, we, we get that. We need your poem. And he nods and says, okay, here comes the poem. And he says, I really don't want to die. <laughs> that, was his, that was his death poem. But this idea of last words, it's really an interesting little segment of the book. What do, you, what do you think about that idea of last words? How would we prepare for last words? And do you have, have you already got yours in your head so you don't have to fumble when it happens? You've got, okay, this is, this is my last word. Oh, that's great. What a terrific question. Yeah. So Steve Jobs, I was so taken by this when I read about it. His sister wrote in the New York Times about it. He said, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And then he died. Three yeah. oh wows. I mean, what what was he experiencing? You know, we don't know. Um, but it, it's it's tremendous to think about that. Uh, I feel, I personally, so I, I do not have my last words written out now. Uh, in part, I feel like, you know, I mean, who knows when I'll die. If it's a dramatic accident, I get, you know, run over by something, then it won't matter. But I do feel like it's the kind of thing that if I'm dying and my family's there, my kids are there. It's the sort of thing that I think will will come very naturally to me. And I don't have them written out yet. No. Yeah. So. I mean, I started thinking about it because you wrote about it. I thought, oh, what are my last words? In in the Jewish Hasidic tradition, there's a teaching that says that each person is born with a fixed number of words to speak. The mm. words themselves are up to you, but you can only speak so many words. And when you've said your last word, the, the number, you die. And so the teaching says, so you never know when you're going to die because you don't know how many words you've been born with. So make the next word you say worth dying for. Just don't die on you idiot. You know, something, come up with something a little more, uh, a, a little more majestic than that as your, as your last word. That's brilliant. That's brilliant, right? Maybe it should be the same thing with a podcast. <laughs> make your last word count. <laughs> oh, great. All right. So I'll give you the last word. What is it going to be? Well, I think my encouragement is do the work now. Um, make every day count. Uh, your relationships count. Anticipate finitude and uh, do the work now. Don't save it up for the end. Excellent. Our guest today was Dr. Lydia Dugdale, Director of the Center for Clinical Medical Ethics, and Dorothy L. and Daniel A. Silverberg, Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University. You can read her essay, Dying Without Religion, The Existential Concern, in uh, Spirituality and Health at spiritualityandhealth.com. The article is based on her new book, which is a very powerful book to read, not overwhelming at all, really just excellent book called The Lost Art of Dying. Lydia Dugdale, thank you for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you. Thanks so much. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, 
please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. This episode of Essential Conversations is supported by Rob Bell and his profound and deeply personal new audiobook, Everything is Spiritual. Join Bell as he explores powerful insights into understanding your true purpose and place in the world. Order your copy wherever audiobooks are sold. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury-Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.